Welcome to Culture Unplugged, powered by BTS. I'm Vanola Smith. We will unpack workplace culture through the lens of diverse people across organizations and really talk about how we can all see one another better while delivering business value. I'll be joined by my BTS colleagues, clients, experts, and thinkers as we unpack how we can reimagine workplace culture. Powered by BTS, this is Culture Unplugged. Join us as we reimagine workplace culture. In this episode, we talk about the role of DEI leaders in advancing diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. We have a chat about what are some of the ways in which they can advance this work, but also what is the support they need in order to ensure the success of DEI strategies and initiatives. We'll also be talking about navigating resistance and recognizing our relationships with power and the nuance and the challenges in conducting this work. And finally, we'll also talk about self-care. And what are some of the strategies Lacey can share, but also strategies that have really worked in helping us continue to use our voices, but also build inclusive environments. In today's episode, I speak to Lacey Jacobs, the Global Head of Diversity, Equity and Inclusion at BTS USA. She has over 20 years of experience helping organizations transform into workplaces where people can thrive belong, and do meaningful work. She's responsible for delivering innovative DEI strategies for external clients that promote intercultural awareness while also growing their capacity for inclusive leadership. I've had the pleasure of working with Lacey, part of a global team, to really think about how we work with our clients to advance inclusion and diversity. I'm quite excited to have Lacey join us today and really share her perspectives and strategies that will help drive this work forward. Lacey, it's such a pleasure to have you with us on Culture Unplugged. Really excited to have this conversation with you. Haven't worked with you for quite a bit now at BTS, um, you know, together part of the center of excellence or global team, really thinking about this work and reimagining what it could look like for our clients. I've learned a lot from you and I'm really excited to be able to record this conversation and bring other people into what we talk about, right? (laughs) And uh, some of the ways that we're thinking about diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging, social justice, and other topics related to, you know, shifting culture and reimagining um, workplace culture. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me, Benolo. It is such a joy to be able to be in this space with you. Like you said, I've learned so much from you as well in this work, and I have been anticipating this conversation. Fantastic. I ask uh, people who come into the podcast this question as a way to really understand what the personal and perhaps the professional, um, you know, imperative or motivation for, you know, doing this work or participating in this work is. And I want to know, what brought you to this work, right? Um, How did you find this work or how did it find you? I love that you said that at the end. It's more (laughs) that this work found me. Uh, In fact, it feels like it chased me down. 
And I didn't have a choice. When I look at this work now, and I can look back, I see very clearly that my whole life has been preparing me for this work. I tease often that my my life has been an exclusion experiment, and I have a heart for the excluded. So I had been running my own business uh, since 2005. I'm a coach, I'm a facilitator, and I've worked in many different ways. And this was one of those ways, like I said, it found me. So I started doing this work just with clients here and there. And then a few years ago, I had a conversation with one of my dear friends, and we talked about partnering in the space of DEI, and I haven't turned back. So it's wanting to make sure that I create the kind of environment within organizations, help other people co-create those environments so that people don't have to feel excluded, that they can feel that they have equitable opportunities, that the same doors are open for them as they are for others, and that we find a way to learn how to be together not because we are triggered by difference, but because we know how beautiful those differences are that exist in each and every one of us because we're better together. I think, you know, when we talk about the work finding you, this is so consistent with many people that I speak to, you know, um, that say, sure, my experience or my positionality or, you know, how I grew up or how I was raised or some of my formative experiences really brought me to this work. And I think, you know, it's one of the ways perhaps that keep inspiring you to stay engaged in the work um, when you have that personal commitment or that personal impetus to to step into this work. And so, I mean, you spoke a little bit about um, your coaching background and how you, you know, partnered with someone at the time to to do this work. What are some of the ways, as you were getting into this work, what are some of the things you were starting to realize about diversity, equity, inclusion? Perhaps what were some of the gaps that you were finding in the space when you first started on this journey? Well, part of what I realized that I would say I learned early on some personal things that were important about this work. And then I also started to see that there is a lot more fear around this work than there is when we're talking about, for example, leadership and coaching and facilitating those types of conversations. So the amount of fear was significant. When I would facilitate conversations, there would be a great deal of silence. I learned early on that silence needed to be an ally, a friend in this work, and that you can't make up what is creating that silence for people. And it's nice because it gives people an opportunity to reflect. The other thing that you'll see when you start getting involved in this type of work is that because of that level of fear, sometimes there can be more resistance. To me, I've normalized that resistance because it makes sense. On the other side of this work, 
There are some really beautiful experiences and opportunities for all of us. So wherever that's the case, there's normally a lot more resistance. So those are two things that I noticed early on. And it's also how people have these conversations. It's recognizing that, you know, we're all on our journey and we really have to meet people where they are. Uh, many times I've, I've noticed even in looking at myself, I've, I took an assessment that we use at BTS, the Intercultural Development Inventory. I remember the first time I took this years ago when I got my results, I thought, oh my God, there's no way I can do this work based on my score. I had to meet myself where I was in that moment. The results reflected uh, my life and it was so insightful and so it's learning that we are all works in progress. And in seeing that, how can we compassionately be, be disruptors of our own experience and the experience of those around us? I really like what you say about and, and how you reflect on the things that we've started to notice when you were doing or entering this work. You mentioned fear, and I think we hear that quite a lot. People are afraid to engage in these conversations. People are afraid because either they feel that they might not have the right words, they might not have the right tools, they might not know what to say, how to say it. And I think a big part of what we're looking to do as well at BTS, and we'll touch uh, some more on that later, is to help people find ways to have the conversations while also sitting with that fear and the root of that discomfort, right? And I think that's important. You also spoke about meeting people where they are, that this is a journey. I think one of the things we also reflect on is the fact that perfection is not the requirement. Perfection is not the outcome that we're looking for. It is really about staying committed to doing the work and staying committed to where there's discomfort or where you are feeling defensive or where you're feeling the resistance, right? To stay in it in order to move through it and to unpack it in a way that you're able to see so many different perspectives, but also able to grow um, and contribute your own insights and perspectives uh, along the journey. So that's such an important way of approaching it to really meet people where they are. I so agree with you, Benello, and it is that piece around growing. Uh, we talk about this at BTS from the place of, you know, recognizing that in this work, it is increasing our quotient for discomfort. It's why I like the word courage too in this space, because courage is actually, you know, noticing and seeing the fear and still doing something anyway. Mm. Um, I think about Joseph Campbell and his work um, with Carl Jung, and it's recognizing that the cave that we fear to enter, mm -hmm. you know, holds the treasure that we seek. And so unfortunately, sometimes people can let that fear stop them from doing it. And to your point, it's really important for us to move toward you know, some of these things that are making us uncomfortable, have these hard conversations. It's the only way that we're going to see the value of this work. When we talk about this work and when we talk about the value of the work, I think 
diversity, equity, and inclusion is top of mind for many organizations and institutions at the moment. In fact, I think just in the past couple of years, we've seen such an increase in hiring and recruiting, you know, CDOs, chief diversity officers, as they may be called in other areas, or let's call them diversity DI leaders um, for the sake of this conversation. Part of that has been just the global momentum for this, but we also we're seeing that our clients, we're seeing that organizations are increasingly um, seeing the value of this work. But again, it comes back to not necessarily knowing how to approach the work. And I think what's encouraging is the start. But we know that um, for this work to really succeed, right, it's, it's quite important then to be committed, to be invested, and to have a genuine commitment to the work and the people you bring in to do this work. So I'd love for us to maybe pivot our conversation a little bit to talking about um, the role of DEI leaders, right, in organizations. What would you say the role of a CDO, chief di- you know, diversity officer or a DEI leader is primarily in an organization? A DI leader is responsible for, I believe, a lot of different things within an organization, and their role is probably bigger than a lot of people give it credit for being. A DI leader is going to work to establish a strategy for DEI and ensure that that strategy is part of the business strategy of the organization. So who that DEI leader is reporting to makes a huge difference. There has been a lot of conversation about if an organization has a DEI leader reporting through HR, Mm -hmm. that it's an indication that this organization is not valuing the work, Mm -hmm. that DEI leaders need to be reporting in through the CEO. Either way, what we do know is that It is important for an organization to uh, put their money where their mouth is, Mm. you know, and, and create a budget that the DEI leader can utilize to be able to create the right kind of programming to ensure that the, that hiring, uh, diversity, attracting and sustaining once you bring people into the organization is critical. You know, often what ends up happening is, you know, some organizations may end up increasing the amount of diverse talent that they're hiring. And yet there is a sense of what I've heard be referred to as the illusion of inclusion, right? I'm here now and what's in place that is going to create the opportunities for me to thrive and also to feel like this is a place where I belong. I believe that DEI leaders think about this all the time. And in order to make this happen, they need strong relationships within the organization, strong buy-in from other people because this is not something that they can do alone. Mm -hmm. And this is often how DEI leaders feel, that they are in this by themselves. Um, They don't have that kind of support from others in the organization where it matters. 
And um, that's something that definitely needs to change. Mm. Lacey, I think you touch on some really important elements of this role, but just primarily the importance of organizations putting their money where their mouth is, right? So it's not enough to say, look, we've got someone dedicated to helping us with this work or leading this work internally. It's also to say, what are the reporting lines? How seriously do we take this work? And, you know, I think this role of being a DI leader is a strategic role. We talk about DNI and we'll expand on that a little bit later as a enabler of strategy. And so when it sits in, you know, a hidden part of the business or a part of the business that is associated, you know, um, or is, is not viewed as strategic, it doesn't then get the support that is needed. And so really think what you highlighted about creating a budget, um, reporting lines, but also a key element being around the relationships, right? Having strong relationships and strong sponsorship and support uh, at the most senior levels is crucial to advancing the work where people are able to see that our C-suite is behind the DEI, um, you know, strategy that we have is in support of this work. Uh, they, uh, from an individual, but also collective perspective are invested in this work. DEI initiatives, but also DEI leaders tend to succeed to your point. And so I think that's such a critical point that you, that you highlight. Now, you also speak about some of the challenges of this work, right? Just this illusion of inclusion, but also the, some of the hurdles that DI leaders face in doing this work. You know, as we talk about the role of the DI leader, what are some of the other challenges that you have seen uh, DI leaders experience in this work or the hurdles that they may be navigating in advancing this work through organizations? I just want to name something, Benello, to your question. One of the things that I read about a year ago when I it was I had been at BTS officially in this road just probably a few months, and I was reading an article. Uh, DEI leaders, CDOs, typically have a shelf life of 18 months, mm -hmm. meaning that is the extent that they will stay in their role. There can be a lot of burnout, exhaustion from, you know, all of the responsibilities. And it's something that we need to be, again, aware of um, because leaders in these situations really need some additional support by the sheer nature of what they're trying to accomplish. This work can also be considered um, episodic, mm -hmm. which is, you know, there's an episode that all of a sudden really creates an interest in doing the work because we're being reactive. Uh, for many in the United States, thinking about the beating of Rodney Keene years ago actually uh, created a greater interest in this work. And as we know recently, George Floyd. Mm. And so now what we are seeing happening is that some organizations are starting to let some of their DEI leaders go. Mm. They're not prioritizing as they were when there was a reason publicly to do so. So DEI leaders are, are navigating that 
kind of inconsistency to the commitment of this work. As well as one of the things that I think we have to be mindful of is that a DEI leader is charged to create a vision of something that rarely we've seen. This is uncharted territory, Mm -hmm. which is full of exciting possibilities. And it doesn't necessarily come with a roadmap. We need a strategy. And as we all know, we can create the best plans for something. And then things happen. So, you know, how do we pivot as we continue to learn about something that may not existed before? So this is, I I believe this is the next wave of evolution for all of us. How do we create a world, communities and workplaces where we can be ourselves, you know, embrace the, the many different perspectives that we each have. And again, look at where we are diverse and still create a sense of belonging, where we belong not because we have assimilated, but because we are bringing our whole selves. Mm -hmm. Definitely, Lacey. I, you know, hear you talking about, you know, that statistic that we often see about the shelf life of DI leaders or CDOs. But also the burnout, and we see this in research, right, consistently, the burnout of doing this work, the exhaustion that comes with this work. And I just want to pause there because that's part of the reason why, in some ways, I avoided coming into this work. I I previously (laughs) shared with you that, you know, I'm South African, Black, female, having grown up in spaces that were were almost invited spaces. Um, I was part of the few first and only or first few and only and having to navigate those spaces and also then create space, fight for space, bring a voice. I felt that it's important to do this work, but it can get exhausting, right? Mm-hmm. Um, particularly as a black woman who has had to navigate some of these complexities in different forms and different ways. And you can share your experience as well. I think it's important, right, for us to recognize that, that there is the professional element of it. I'm hired to do this, but it can be exhausting, um, especially if it's such a close part of one's identity um, and and some of the experiences one has had to navigate. And we'll talk about self-care, right? I think that's mm-hmm. such an important element to touch on. Um, then how do we exercise self-care in doing this work? Because it's important work while it's rewarding work in terms of seeing the change, helping people work better together, fostering inclusion. At the end of the day, um, it does have an impact on one's mental health. And so we'll talk about self-care strategies, right, um, as we do this work. But what, what has it been like for you, you know, thinking about mm. um, just the impact? Um, and sometimes we call it labor, right? Um, <laughs> yes. That this work can feel like uh, emotional and cognitive labor because of the nuance and because of the history sometimes that we carry as well. Um, but what has your experience been like, if you may share? I appreciated hearing your experience, uh, Bonolo, and while we have some differences. There's a lot in what you just shared that I relate to, uh, being a black woman. 
And it's interesting that you use the term labor, because the first thing that came up for me was it does feel like I'm giving birth to something. And it is painful most days. It feels like a longer than a nine month pregnancy, though. (laughs) Um, So that need to, again, introduce possibilities in a world that could be resistant, resistant to what you're offering, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I one of the questions you asked me earlier in terms of, you know, what did I learn early on? Um, I mentioned some things that I learned about others in this space. What I learned about myself was that I was going to be confronted with my own early childhood trauma way more often than I thought I would be. Mm. And that I would need to, to be able to navigate that space, you know, manage what comes up for me when I'm in <clears throat> these difficult conversations. And I experience, for example, you know, this is, the kind of work where we're asking people to acknowledge their privilege mm. and to do something with that privilege that would ultimately feel like for them that they're losing something. And, you know, that's not a, it's not a comfortable conversation to have with some, someone. You have to find words that open up someone's ears and their heart. And, Sometimes you have to do that in in moments where you're feeling personally activated by what they're saying. So it's been, one, an incredible growth experience for me to really confront some of the things that I've dealt with my entire life. Um, And it allows me to bring some depth to these conversations in a way that help people see that often, you know, there are misunderstandings. Early on, you spoke about resistance and some of the resistance that this work can be, can be confronted with. And I think there's so many reasons for that. And it's so, it's so layered, right? And nuanced where that resistance comes from. I'd love for us maybe to unpack that a bit. The resistance that People who've been hired, um, people who've been tasked to lead this work often face in really wanting to implement the change or really wanting to advance some of the strategies that the organization has said it's committed to, but often finding that resistance or lack of commitment along the way. Love for you maybe to share how this tends to play out in the experiences you've had and in, in speaking and working with GI leaders. I love this question because I feel that what we're speaking about now in terms of the resistance also can contribute to the burnout of DEI leaders. It often feels like when you're facing this resistance that you're walking on eggshells every minute of the day, carefully choosing your words. I recently watched a video by Mandela, and he talked about one of the reasons why he was able to be successful was because he made himself not threatening. And when I heard him say that, I thought about who even has to consider 
a question like that. Because I only, I feel that only certain people from certain identity groups would even have a question like that, that they would ask themselves. And it does feel like part of what we're tasked to do as DEI leaders is to have these conversations in a way that people don't feel threatened. So that means a very careful choice of words. It means that you might need to talk about privilege without using the term privilege. I I learned a long time ago in some of the, the training that I took for coaching that privilege is something that any one of us can have. And if we are not aware or conscious of where we have privilege, we are probably abusing it. So getting people to see that without feeling shamed or blamed, it is a nice balancing act. And, you know, we talk about in this work, the the zero-sum game, for example, if I'm approaching you about this work, there's something that you could potentially lose if you have to offer me something. So I hear strategies from people in my roles will say, well, no, no, this is about increasing the size of the pie so that we can move away from that zero-sum game. And... That is a possibility because we know that having a a strong culture that is grounded in DEI truly could make that possible, meaning the pie would get bigger and there'd be this need for all of us to benefit from that. And there's this other piece that it should be okay for us to consider the kind of sacrifices that we're willing to make to create a different world where people who have started at different places, you know, on this this starting line that it's been different for some, that we would create those kind of equitable conditions, that we would create the right conditions for people to feel that psychological safety needed for them to learn and grow and develop their capabilities, that they would feel included and in, in, in that they would have a sense of belonging So sacrifices don't always have to be something big and grandiose, too. It feels like in this space, people think we're asking them to give up always something big. It could look like making a sacrifice not to speak first during a meeting to give room for other people to share. I think about Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, who's a great basketball player that I grew up watching, as a child, and he talked about that. I, I think the good and the great are only separated by the willingness to sacrifice. So these are ways that all of us can step in. You know, what small sacrifice could we make that could lead us to, you know, achieving some of these initiatives? the strategies that we are are looking to accomplish. Because some DEI strategies, initiatives are DOA. You know, they're dead on arrival. 
because of this resistance. And we want to change that. And just listening to you speak, I'm also thinking about our relationship with power. When we talk about privilege, when we talk about understanding the disproportionate impact, the disproportionate privilege, and so on, that people have within organizations, we have to be mindful of power. And when we refuse to recognize that, to your point, we really run the risk of abusing it. If we think about proximity to power, if we think about privilege, I think in some ways, yes, there is a, in part thinking about how we abuse that, how we benefit from that, but also how might we use it in service of others? And I think perhaps that's another conversation um, that we need to look at to say, I'm afforded this privilege. I'm in this positionality. And how do I use my voice? How do I become more mindful of how I can also make an impact and contribute to the conversation? And it's a journey, right? But it's, it's also about being committed to that process. And of course, when an awareness, when new information is brought to you, there is that human tendency of wanting to defend, to protect oneself. But I think the commitment to openness, the commitment to learning and listening are some of the things that we tend to talk about, particularly when you're thinking about this work. How do we create moments where we can actually hear, where we can listen, where we can see one another better and really start to see, right, the different positions people are coming from and the different experiences, different lived experiences people are coming from. It tends to in some ways, open our eyes to to some re- realities, to some realities. And I'm thinking about allyship and how there are meaningful partners. There are allies who are committed to this work. And I'm just curious to hear about your how you've seen meaningful allyship aid or support or advance this work as well, Lacey. When I think about allyship, I think about the need for great awareness. We created something called a give model at BTS. And part of that is thinking about the G as being generous and offering that generosity, which means, you know, being a great ally requires some steps before I go there. Because what we have seen in the past are people assuming they know what someone else might need, stepping in and speaking on behalf of someone. So it gets into that dynamic you talked about, power. Instead of it becoming a situation where there's shared power, it can still feel like power over. Mm. You know, often it could be someone saying, look at me, look at how good I am. Look at what I'm doing for this poor person. Mm. And that is not good allyship. Mm. Good allyship is where we lean in with curiosity, where we lean in by paying attention to someone so that we can start to learn what is needed and what is wanted in that situation. Mm. So what I would caution people who want to step into this role is to understand what's their intention and their motivation behind doing that. Mm. 
And we have to shift this place of thinking about these poor people. Mm. It's my job to do something for them. I would question that approach. It's seeing people as being in situations where, again, maybe they had a different starting point Mm -hmm. and they are absolutely capable given the right conditions. So what can I do to open those doors to offer that and treat them like a human being who is just as capable as myself to step into whatever might be in store for them, whatever opportunities that it might provide where that person can move into their own potential and their own greatness. I'm hearing you saying that really meaningful allyship is about humility. It's about, you know, really being in tune with what your colleague needs. It's really about partnership, right? It's not about you. It's about being in service and and really thinking about how do we partner in service um, of making the shift or in creating more room or challenging uh, various things. Lacey, I'd love for us to talk about some self-care strategies. I think there is no doubt so much potential. There's so many opportunities in this work. There is so much that energizes or can energize about this work. And, um, you know, where there is commitment, true commitment, we've seen how this work, um, can truly change and shift organizations. We've seen how people can begin to embody more inclusive behaviors. And, and, but we also know that in order to continue this work, we also need to take care of ourselves as DEI leaders. What are some of the self-care strategies that you could share? you know, with DI leaders? First of all, it's important for me to acknowledge Bonolo. For those that are listening to this that know me, I am a work in progress in this space. <laughs> so I am learning. 2023 is definitely one of those years because I've, I've surpassed that 18-month point that we talked about. So it is finding those ways in which I can offer myself ways to care better, for my, my health and my well-being, because I talk about in this work often that I'm both tired and inspired. Um, so one of the things that I will say, if anyone feels that this would be of something that would tap into their own interest, is that my husband just purchased a boxing bag. <laughs> uh, <laughs> real practical. <laughs> real practical. And I have been enjoying going down in our basement and hitting that back. It has felt like I am releasing a whole bunch of frustration and the type of energy that you want to let go of. So that's been one thing that I've done. I believe another self-care strategy is to surround yourself by people who share similar values, have a vision for this type of work as well. And at the same time, people who are different than you are. I have found a lot of value. I've always had a lot of diversity in my life. Being a Black woman who's often in spaces where people don't look like me, being someone who engaged with people that were different than me was was not a choice. And at the same time, I value that. 
So I surround myself with people who actually are compassionate, empathetic, and also will tell me the truth, will give me great feedback, who don't all think alike. I think it's important in this work that we walk our talk. And that to me is a self-care strategy. Because if I don't walk my talk, then I'm going to feel like I'm out of integrity. And that's going to cause more problems. Other strategies, take some time off. That is something that I struggle with. And I, I believe we have to step away from this work and give ourselves a break. One of the things that I noticed when I joined BTS was that I was becoming an exclusion cop. I was looking for places <laughs> where people weren't being inclusive. And I thought, wow, this is taking me away from my value. My value was to be inclusive. I'm just paying attention to where other people are excluding others. It doesn't afford me the time to do what is precious to me. So that's the other thing. Make sure that you really are aligned with your values and all of the stress and the resistance and the things that we've talked about here today together don't pull you away from what really matters to you about this work. Hearing you speak about these self-care strategies just reminds me of how if we're not intentional about doing those things or carving out the time to replenish, whether it's taking a step away from the work, uh, being in spaces or communities that are truthful or give you feedback, we will be exhausted. We will find ourselves um, really losing, losing ourselves, right, um, in the process. And so very important to stay mindful of those self-care practices. The one final thing I will say, because often there have been people who have suggested, can't this work just be fun? And I would say when people have asked me that question, they have probably felt some resistance from me. This work is serious. It's important that we pay attention to, you know, where people have suffered and the challenges and struggles that they have faced. And so just trying to force fun into the equation can be something we want to be mindful of. And for me personally, I've always wanted to stay away from that. What I do believe is that throughout the process, fun can naturally emerge. There are going to be times where we will laugh together and we will enjoy those special moments. And that is when you understand how important, how valuable, you know, the work that we're doing together actually is. So while they, it shouldn't be something that we mandate on the front end, if we are doing the work in a way that creates space for people to feel safe enough to do the reflection and to do the hard things, fun will emerge out of that. I completely resonate with that coming from a South African perspective where we're also trying to navigate our history and the impact of our history on how we relate to one another and also how we do this work. And uh, sometimes you hear things like, oh, you know, can't we just get over it? I mean, it happened so many years ago. Let's move past it. Let's find fun ways to <laughs> have these conversations. And you spot on that 
It's real. This work and the emotions associated mm. um, and the trauma related to this work is not fun. And uh, creating space for people to navigate that, but also... I think as we create authentic spaces for connection, the human element uh, emerges and, and points of fun and connecting also emerge. But um, it's really important to stay true to the essence of, of this work and, and just the importance of the work. Lacey, it has been incredible speaking to you. I felt seen, energized, inspired. Uh, but also challenged. And I think this is, I mean, a start, right, of a bigger conversation. And it's been really great to unpack some of the challenges of being a DI leader. But hearing your perspective in terms of what are the opportunities, what are some of the ways we can think about this work, but also the strategies to help us stay in this work um, and support one another in this work, because we know that it's crucial. We know that it is not going to go away so long as there's humans. We know that we can continue to all participate in it and uh, build inclusive work environments. So thank you for, for sharing your journey with us. You're so welcome. And every time I speak to you, I love it. And today was no different. So thank you for having me. Thank you, Lacey. This is Culture Unplugged. Powered by BTS.